0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready Not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber slate rust resistant
1: griddle. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com.
0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your guide to the Whitetail Woods presented by first light creating proven versatile hunting apparel for the stand saddle or blind first light go farther stay longer and now your host mark kenyon
1: welcome to the Wire to hunt podcast i'm your guest host tony peterson and today i'm speaking to adam moore about scouting down south Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Wire to Hunt podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. You probably know, or right now this is not the mustachioed madman, Mark Kenyon. He's actually off with our good friend Spencer making a kung fu movie. That's honestly all the details I have on this situation, but I'm sure it'll be a blockbuster and not just those two weirdos fake punching and kicking each other in their pajamas while yelling hi to one another. Anyway. I have a special treat for all you whitetail hunters who say acorn, Clay Newcomb style, versus acorn, which is the proper pronunciation. Today, I'm speaking with Adam Moore, who lives way down in the bottom of the country in Mississippi. Adam is an accomplished outdoor writer who spends a lot of time both bow and rifle hunting the swamp-dwelling whitetails of the south. I had a blast talking with him and hearing about his scouting strategies and how he deals with the challenges of being a southern white tail hunter. And I think you're gonna love listening to his advice. Adam, how you doing, buddy?
2: Good. Great to be here, Tony. Thanks.
1: Are you are you still a little sad that old Cormac McCarthy finally <laughs> finally bit the dust on us after 89 years and uh his his crazy journey as a writer?
2: Yeah, I actually wasn't sure like how to feel about it at the time when i heard i mean obviously it was like a blow but like i don't know him personally but at the same time like this is was also the guy who like is probably the reason i ended up you know studying english in college and even had an interest interest in, in reading at all
1: is you, is your favorite author yeah yeah me too
2: yeah um, i just finished his uh the passenger actually a couple weeks ago um and was just thinking about that. And then another book I'd read of his, Sutri, uh, that I read this summer too. And um, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool because, you know, he's writing about places that that are like an hour away from me here in Mississippi. Uh, and he actually mentions Hattiesburg in the book. And I was like, you know what? That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, he uh,
1: he can really dial in a location, man. I mean, that guy, and you know, if anybody, anybody listening to this who's like, who the hell are you guys talking about? Uh this is this is the author of No Country for Old Men. This is the author of The Road. The, you know, those are the most famous works, probably because they're just known as the you know, they turned into movies, but he has written some amazing, amazing books uh in kind of unlikely locations. A lot of American Southwest and like Adam just said, some of the some of the southern places, you know, the latest latest one down in New Orleans, just such a such a badass writer. And what I didn't realize about it, you know, when I found out that he passed away, a bunch of people texted me and, you know, I started, started looking around. He didn't, he, so he was 89 when he passed away. He didn't even really start getting any recognition as a writer till he was in his sixties.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I mean, and I think, you know, blood meridians is the one really that put him on the map, but you know, a lot of his early works that, that don't get mentioned a lot, a lot of those Appalachian books, man, they're just as like, messed up
1: dude. so brutal
2: (laughs) brutal um but also uh eerily true to i guess humanity or whatever
1: yeah he uh he has a gift or had a gift man and it's i uh i think it's i think it's crazy to see somebody who's who has kind of ascended to that level right i mean there's like You know, I mean, his name is in the same sentence as Faulkner and some of these dudes who changed the entire course of, you know, like the literary course, basically. But he didn't even he was three quarters of the way through his life or two thirds of the way through his life before he even got any recognition. I'm like, man, there's still hope. (laughs) There's still hope for all of us.
2: I've like 30 years, so I'm good.
1: <laughs> yeah. Do you do you think? I know we're gonna get to scouting here in a second. Do you think uh, Blood Meridian's ever gonna actually get made into a movie? Because there's there, you know, he was working on the screenplay when he when he passed away, and I just I think about that book and the the characters in it. And I'm like, man, that's a heavy lift to turn that into a movie.
2: Yeah. Well, I think just the fact that he was having to work on a, uh a screenplay that hasn't been done effectively by numerous people or it hasn't even been approached by numerous people. It's like pretty telling. Um, I think it is, it's, it's gonna, I'm not optimistic about it. If I'm it makes a good screen, uh, there's a lot of what makes that book so good or that drives it is, is stuff. That's not going to make it good in the box office.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I think that's, I, I kind of want to see it make it, I don't know why. Uh, but I, I feel like I'm just going to be disappointed and I feel like I'm going to be one of those pricks. Who's like the book was better, (laughs) you know?
2: (laughs) Of course. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think no country was like spot on. I mean, not, not entirely, but like as far as a movie, like I think the Coen brothers just did, I don't think they could have done any better.
1: Yeah. It was pretty tight. (laughs) They did did a good job (laughs) with that one. Uh, And what's crazy. So if you're listening to this and you've never read his books, the crazy thing about his books, not, not only his vocabulary, was bananas. I mean, you'd sit there and I'm looking up words all day long. I'm like, I never heard this word, that word. Uh, the imagery, so badass. Some of that stuff in Blood Meridian is just, it's done so well and it's so brutal. But the thing that you hear people complain about or they don't understand about him is, you know, he's just like no punctuation. He doesn't write like writer does like he doesn't he didn't really fit the mold and he was always kind of like i don't care i'm just doing what i do and you're not losing anything in his process the way he does it you he's so good you still get everything out of it and i always think about that in everything and you look at hunting and you know I, i just spent a lot of time with andy may and andy may has such a process he's 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 such a student of the game and his process is quite a bit different than mine and quite a bit different than a lot of different people. And you go, it doesn't really matter, man. Like his results are this, they're so good that it doesn't matter. And I look at this and I go, this is why it's so important to expose yourself to so many different voices. And, you know, maybe you want to be a, a, a bed hunting expert like some of the guys out there, or maybe you want to just fly through every hunting area like somebody else or whatever. And That's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on here because one of the holes in my game that you Southern fellows point out to me a lot is (laughs) we don't talk to Southern deer hunters enough. And I I fully (laughs) like, you're (laughs) right. I hear you. It it happens where you kind of see the whitetail world through your own eyes and your own experience and it's kind of hard to step outside the box, but I know when you do, you learn stuff. And that's why I'm so excited to have you on, because anybody who's listening to you talk can tell you don't speak like I do. And there's a reason for that, right? That's right. Yeah, where where, where are you living at?
2: So I live in uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So uh, if anybody's familiar with that, um, it's Brett Favre country. Um, so I'm about an hour from the coast. They call it the hub city because, um, you know, just about in any direction, there's kind of a, a different city so we've got new orleans uh which is southwest of here obviously we've got the the gulf coast and then you know mobile alabama uh birmingham jackson so it's, they, they call hattiesburg the hub city um so it's it, it's really almost a tropical like climate um rains here almost every day you can bet during the summer like it's gonna rain here um yeah it doesn't get, as far as cold temps go it's going to be you know a shocker for um you know all you midwest guys or people who are you know live in minnesota or whatever are uh, yeah our, our cold days are probably like you know walk walking the parks for for you So well what it, what uh,
1: is a cold day for you guys
2: so uh, i mean so an average cold day you know highs in the upper 40s you know not even maybe it freezing at night uh, you know, there are the, the occasional days we'll get, you know, a few a year where we might get a, a day or two in the, in the single digits, but, um, it's not uncommon really to be wearing shorts and flip-flops on Christmas day either.
1: And, and so during your, during just like an average, let's just say an average bow hunt for you. What, what are you expecting for temps for that?
2: Um, eighties, the month of October, if we get an early cool snap um, you know, highs in the lower seventies and then maybe the upper fifties, you know, for, for lows. And I, th- I think those are, those are pretty normal. Obviously last year, everyone was experiencing that kind of heat wave, that drought that we had. Uh, and we had some, some days that were in the, the lower nineties that, that first month.
1: Do Do you, um, you guys get any mosquitoes down there?
2: Oh my God. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's, scent control when it, when it comes to the early seasons, like, yeah, you want to play your win. Right. But as far as like, you know, after that, you just need to like spray your off or keep your thermos on you and, and hope for the best.
1: Yeah. There's, there's only so much you can do in that department. Um, What, what does it mean for you? Well, I I know what I was going to ask you before we get into it. What, what's the hunt hunting culture? Like I've hunted with a few dudes from Mississippi. They were all pretty damn good. And it, it feels, I don't, I don't know how to describe this. Like where I live, there is a tradition of, you know, go to the, the deer camp in northern Minnesota, you know, hunt with your uncles and your, you know, your cousins and whoever. And that's kind of like the traditional deer hunt here. It's a short window, uh, but it feels like there's a different way of life in a lot of places down south where it's like just more embedded in the culture.
2: Yeah. Uh, and there's, you know, multiple facets of that too. Like, um, you know, we call them usually hunting clubs or, uh, some, some people call them deer camps too, but there's, you know, a lot of, yeah, you know, lease land, um, you know, dog hunting is a big thing here. Uh, really is pretty unique to the South. I think maybe as far North as it goes, is like Virginia. Um,
1: have you ever so done the, it?
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I grew up, uh, my grandfather and my, my dad, that's how they started deer hunting was actually with dogs. And so I actually went this past year, I was doing a story uh, on, on deer dog hunting. And so uh, that's a big, uh, often divisive uh, way, tradition of hunting down here. Now I would say the other is, it's probably, um, is really focused on private land or um, hunting a lease, you know, going to you know, the hunting club or um, or wherever, and then, yeah. As far as like anything else, the the stereotypes surrounding <laughs> southern hunters—they're, uh, yeah—they're they're painful, but a lot of those are true as well.
1: Well, we we got a few ourselves. What the the hound hunting thing for deer down there is that primarily like a big hunting club thing, or is that a lot of public land? Where where is that happening?
2: Yeah. So uh, both. So a lot of our, uh, a lot of the national forest uh, and then the, you know, WMA is around here. Um, they have specific dates and zones where you're allowed to do it. So, um, and there, there are certain windows. So there's like really, I think about two weeks uh, or two to four weeks where that's when the dog hunting is really going on. Uh, and, and you know when that is. So, you know, for, for people who are, you know, on the fence or kind of against dog hunting, like it's not going to take you by surprise. And you know, where, you know, if you, if you pull up somewhere, like there's a ton of trucks and orange vests, like out on the side of, you know, the national forest roads and stuff, like, you know, what's going on.
1: Yeah. So you Um, can, you can plan around it pretty well. I mean, it's not going to like disrupt your whole season.
2: No, no. I mean, and it, and it really, um, part of that story I did was actually talking about how, like how to find success. And even if you're hunting private or public land that gets hammered pretty hard, um, or by dog hunters, but yeah. I'd say for the majority of it, it, it's happening on, on leased land.
1: Sure. Was it, was that, uh, did you do that for outdoor life? Yeah. Oh, you did. Yeah. I've, I've never, I've never been around that for deer. Um, you know, I'm a big dog guy and it's always, it's always weird to me. Cause I have, my experience with hounds is either, you know, I grew up with some people who raccoon hunted a lot and I did that a little bit with them. Never really was my thing. And then where I hunt in Wisconsin, uh, they, they can run bears with hounds over there. And it kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth as a private landowner with, uh, who likes whitetails over there. Cause there's a lot of going across fence lines and things like that with running the bears. And it, so I, I actually interviewed a, a woman who does it one time and I and I kind of realized how much of a hypocrite I am because it's like, I look at, th- that's like a world that's just not that familiar to me. It doesn't really interest me that much. And so I look at it kind of negatively, like, oh, running bears with dogs kind of sucks. And yet one of my favorite things in the world to do is run pheasants with my dogs. <laughs> you know what I mean? So Fair you're way. like, and I, I think of the deer thing, like the de- running deer with dogs is like such an alien thing to me. I don't really even understand it. So my my kind of gut reaction is to be like, ah, I don't I don't really like it even though I don't know anything about it and I've never done it." And so I I'm trying to not be such a prick that way, <laughs> but it's like it's just it's just what you're exposed to, you know.
2: Right. Yeah, I know, and it's um yeah, it's definitely not for everybody. It, I think the you grow up in it or you're, you know, part of a club that like does it, you know, it's kind of like a you know, one of those cool aspects about hunting, right? Everyone's kind of coming together. It really is like this team effort. Um, obviously, there are ways to do it right. There are ways to do it wrong, for sure. Um, fortunately, I, the ones I've been on, you know, ran with like such precision, you know. And everyone uses like GPS collars, and they're really familiar with like where they're running at. They've been doing it for years, so they know basically what the deer are going to do when they turn these these dogs out. Um, and like I was tagging along with a guy and he's like, okay, we're going to turn the dogs out here. If we jump a deer, then they're going to run it this way. And if they break off here, then we're going to have to pick up the dogs. And like, sure enough, it was like unfolded just how he said. And like, we were there, scooped the dogs off before they got in the road. Um, yeah, it's just, it's kind of impressive to watch even as, I did a, you know, a few times, my, my grandfather, and my, my dad, but, um, and yeah, just watching it from that perspective was like, man, this is really cool. This is almost as methodical as like someone who's like planning to, to pattern this buck or they've got a buck they've patterned. Now they're going to go in and make a move.
1: Man, um, I, could, I could see it. I could see it getting it, its hooks into you that way. Uh, yeah. What what kind of weapon we are talking about here? Cause I, my, probably like three quarters of my knowledge of running deer with dogs came from the old man and the boy Ruark's, you know, remember yeah. that section on running and they're sitting there with buckshot. Like what, how does it work for you guys?
2: Yeah. So, uh, obviously everyone's, you know, spaced out in a way that's, you know, is safe and, and everyone's like directed, which it's so thick down here. Like even if you're to shoot chances are you're shooting to a giant pine thicket. Um, and, and most of the time people are spread out to where you're not even in like shouting distance. Yep. Um, so that's why you know the cb radios are a big thing a lot of you see the the antennas you know if you ride around down here um that's because you're not an earshot of anyone so you gotta you know call them up on the cb and then um so as far as weapons uh, we have seen everything from like you know your dad's 30 30 to shotgun with buckshot uh some people use scope rifles they're not really um effective when you're especially if you're kind of in tight quarters or you're, you're expecting deer to come through in tight quarters. Um, but yeah, so think of the, those old, you know, woods guns, big woods guns, like the, your lever actions, your, your Savage 99s, maybe, um, your Remington 740s, those auto loaders and stuff, pump actions.
1: Mm-hmm. Like a little yeah. model 94, 30, 30, 30, open sights type of deal, close quarters, 40, yeah. 50 yards and under kind of running shot type of thing.
2: Right running or and, and most people think like running like full speed is actually a trot um so now sometimes the you know if they jump them right in front of you their deer you can see them jump up then yeah they're probably getting out of there pretty quick but most of the time it's a trot sometimes the deer are actually walking through because they're so far ahead of the dogs um yeah
1: yeah I, i've heard that that they don't you know, in your head, you conjure this kind of chaotic image of deer running everywhere, but they're, the deer are pretty wise to that game of getting chased by canines too. And they're not, they're not generally going to put themselves in a position where they got to go, you know, full antelope to get out of there. Like they're, right. they're ahead of the game.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times you have, I mean, you have enough time to make a decision like, oh, this isn't a legal buck. Oh, this is a buttonhead. Um, oh, this is a doe. I'm probably going to let this one pass. Um. Yeah,
1: that's it's it's actually pretty cool. I'll kind of reluctantly admit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, man, it's yeah, it, it's a blast, and when when someone gets gets one, it's it, it's awesome, and, and the recovery rate is even if someone you know unfortunately makes a bad shot, like you know by the time the dogs you know get it, you know the deer slow down, you know you're you're in a position where, um much like bear hunting, right when They've got a bear surround. It's, it's very similar. And so recovery rates is pretty exceptional too.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I suppose, you know, we should probably talk about uh, some scouting here. Cause I, yeah. I, I'm interested cause I was thinking how miserable a lot of my scouting trips are in the summer. And then I'm like, I'll bet you, I should probably shut my mouth. Cause I'll bet you, if you had to scout deer down where you live, it's a hell of a lot worse, but you actually do a lot of your scouting like January, February timeframe, huh?
2: Yeah, that's really the best time uh, to get Intel for the, obviously for the next year, but you can also, you know, cause we don't really get snow down here. It's not, we might get a flurry every now and then, but like, yeah, you can basically, as soon as the season ends, um, you can do your winter scouting and it's great because, um, you know, for that time of year, if you're scouting for, you know, December, January, those deer are going to be on that same pattern. You can bet the next time, based on like the food sources that are available at that time. But, um, yeah, I like to do, you know, the end of January. So, February, we also have – that's when our – another squirrel season is, um, and rabbit. So, it runs to the end of the month. So, that's a good time to kind of walk the woods with a shotgun. Um, and when I've done that in the past, I'm typically – I'm on a scouting mission, but if I see a rabbit or a squirrel, it's a bonus. Yeah. Um, you know, the woods are laid bare. You can see, you know, tracks, you can see paths like, um, yeah, it's just kind of wide open. And I really try to focus on, especially if I know if I've seen deer in one location and I'm, and I'm that's where I'm spending my time scouting. Um, cause you, you're,
1: you're primarily hunting public land, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I have, uh. My dad owns about 140 acres, uh, but it's it's about a two-hour drive for me, and so I had to pass up a lot of land to get there, a lot of public land, so it just makes sense. But I do hunt uh, plenty of private as well.
1: Do you, do you find – because I, I was wondering about this. You know, when we, when we winter scout up here, our goal is you're kind of looking for rut signs. So if I get out in February, cause I do the same thing as you do. I go squirrel hunting, rabbit hunting a lot, and – you know, it's, it's basically a, a glorified scouting mission where I might shoot a rabbit or a squirrel, you know, but right. the, the conditions, like if I, if I go out in February here and I find deer beds, it doesn't mean that much to me, you know, cause, because the conditions have changed so much from when I'll be hunting them in November, October versus then you know they might have moved a long ways. They're they're thinking about geothermal cover. They're they're in survival mode, and it's so some sign that we focus on. You know, like the rubs and scrapes. You know those those are valuable because you know when they were made. But if you look at like a, a fresh trail here in February, it doesn't doesn't translate well to next bow season, you know, but I wonder about you, like in your situation and down South In a lot of places, you don't have a big seasonal seasonal shift quite like we do. Like they're not worried about freezing to death in Mississippi. So do you see like a, a tighter correspondence to that spring scouting, like every sign, every trail track you find, like is it pretty tight to what you'd find in the season or are there still some pretty big differences?
2: Yeah, I'd say there's some, still some pretty big differences because, and again, you know, everything is relative. So when it, our coldest month, you know, is January. And so what the deer, what that looks like basically is the deer are shifting cover and they're also shifting, you know, food patterns. So, uh, and and I've noticed, you know, this changes um, even for doe, like doe bedding areas, um, you know, whatever that was in October, probably isn't going to be, at least in, You know, if you're hunting primarily like public land and you're, you're hunting uh, hard and soft mass and uh, browse, natural browse, like that's going to change. And that's probably going to change their bedding area from October uh, to the end of the season, you know, at the end of January. Um, this past year, I was sort of focused on a doe group that I was one um, of the key in on the rut because i knew there was a buck in the area um and so in october you know the, the these doe group this doe group was bedded in one area because they were their bedding area was right next to plenty of white oaks plenty of red oaks right some of that hard mass that they're hitting as soon as they're dropping in in october um and then throughout november but then the same doe group um, eventually you uh, know, so the end of December, end of January ended up and I saw them consistently, you know, coming out, I don't know, four or five nights from another bedding area, and it was eight hundred yards away from that. And that was because they shifted their the bedding area they shifted to had this really soft edge along. It was a a cutover with you know, pines that were probably twelve, fifteen feet tall, and then there was a ton of brows, ton of like green briar um that they've been munching on and then there were also a lot of water oaks um which are kind of like the least desirable uh, out of the you know the white white oaks and red oaks i found that water oaks are, are really kind of the last ones that they're going to eat as the season progresses and so yeah it was just cool to see like how that shifted based on what their food source was at that time of year and what food was available to them
1: those water oaks is that a is that a tannin thing as well, like the difference so. between the white and the reds, yeah, yeah, so you actually have three three options to play there, you know the whites first, then the reds, and then the the water oaks,
2: yeah, and we also have uh swamp chestnut oak, which is those are awesome too, um and if you find one of those that those can be uh really hot um, yeah food item for them too they're so giant. Uh, acorn just like a uh, white
1: oak. Clay would be so proud of you for saying that, <laughs> acorn.
2: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, n- Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store system, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station get fired up for your new weber slate rust resistant griddle now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co.
3: Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
1: So, are you primarily... I'm not getting a big destination food source vibe out of you. So you're, you're primarily scouting hard mass, soft mass and browse to key on, and then narrow it maybe down to doe group betting based around food sources and then play the buck game around that.
2: Yeah. And I mean, and and for the bug betting too. um, So the thing about the South, like our growing season is exponentially longer than the rest of the country. Um, And, So that, so there's a ton of bedding area. Like, you know, that's one thing, you know, you talk about, you know, Southern hunting doesn't get deer hunting, doesn't get a a ton of coverage. And that's one thing, you know, I've noticed throughout the years, like, like the bedding that, you know, a lot of Midwestern guys key in on, or um, it just really wasn't applicable to the South because there's so much bedding Um, just because it's so thick and everything's so green for so long deer can bed and feed in the same place and really not have to move that far all day.
1: Um, do, do you find because of that, that there, there's just looser patterns too?
2: Yeah. It Well, it, it seems like they're looser patterns. Uh, I think it's just that when there's ample amount of coverage and big bucks don't have to leave cover or they don't have to travel far to find the food, it seems like the deer aren't moving, but you know, we know like, you know, MSU Deer Lab right up the road has is, is done studies where it's like, no, these, these bucks are moving just like they move in the Midwest. It's like they move in the Northeast. Like they're just in cover or you're just not in the right place. Yeah. Isn't it
1: amazing how just, just levels of visibility color our entire experience around that, right? Like, and it, it, it was bad when we didn't have trail cameras, And you had to actually lay eyes on them somehow. And now with trail cameras, it's gotten like exponentially worse where it's like, we just draw these conclusions based off these tiny little anecdotal pieces of evidence. Like, well, they're all nocturnal or they don't move through here. And then, you know, when you keep talking about this, all I keep thinking in my head is big woods hunting. Like, it just, it reminds me of that where it's like, you're not going to pinpoint like a specific, uh, you know, bench on a, on a bluff side and be like, He's gonna bed there. There's a billion places for it. And then if there isn't that dreamy cornfield or soybean field, then you're like, now the pattern doesn't seem A to B because I can't watch it <laughs> and there's right. not the consistency to it. So it's a totally different game than a lot of whitetail hunting.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's very much like the big woods because when we have so many bedding areas, you know, and a lot of a lot of mistakes I see guys making is like they do they get a nice buck on camera. And they're like, oh, well, he's betting here. I know he's betting here because I have him on camera. And all I need to do is, like, play the win and set up here. The reality is, like, okay, he was better there that day. But there's also great betting 400 yards away over here. Or there's, you know, to the south, there's, like, 200 yards away. There's even more betting. And it's, like, all that buck has to do is, like, travel through that and browse through that. and or be in one different location than when you expect them to be here. And it's like, oh, well, somebody killed him. He's gone nocturnal. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a lot like big woods hunting without, but on a much smaller scale.
1: Well, and it's pretty flat too, right?
2: Yeah, that that's another thing that can be frustrating, right? It It's really flat in a lot of places. So, you know, looking for those, you know, awesome topographical features like, oh, like, here's a saddle. I know he's going to be here or here's a ridge system. Not to say we don't have those. Like we definitely have those, but the way deer traveling or utilizing those can be a lot different because of the bedding. It's like, they're not going to bed on the end of a bald Ridge when, you know, there's a a pine thicket 300 yards away from that and they can get to the food source and still have the wind at their back and and feel comfortable with it.
1: Yeah. I think The, and just, just generally speaking, the thicker it gets, the flatter it gets, the harder it gets. (laughs) Like you talk about playing wind and patterning deer. I mean, I, I, I I never really realized this until I started hunting a lot of big wood stuff. Cause I grew up hunting bluff country, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and I didn't, I didn't understand the advantage you have in figuring out deer movement when there's a lot of turn like up and down terrain. And then when it starts to get flatter, it's like a whole, it not even just like betting, not just travel. Like the, there's a whole different ball game you have to play where they don't have to go through here from point A to B and they can easily get downwind to you. And if they figure out that you might be there, they will get downwind to you. And it's, it changes the entire game by a lot.
2: Yeah, it does. And I think that's what makes, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of advice you hear from the industry, you know, it's, it's almost like this blanket statement for deer hunting, like, Oh, just find the, the the funnel. And it's like, okay, well, what if your funnel is like this wide, you know, and, and obviously, and, and that's the, that's the key though. Like you, you can still find those places It's just keying in on sign. Um, it is keying in on, you know, if there is slight topographical features that might not, you know, pop up on, on X or something like it's, it's getting in there, getting boots on the ground and finding, um, you know, those things that aren't going to show up on the map. Like this past year, I was kind of just speed scouting a place in the middle of the season. Um, I was still hunting. The wind was, was kind of squirrely this day. So I was like, well, I'm going to kind of play conservative, just use this as a scouting day. And there was an area that I'd been wanting to check out. It was kind of downwind of some bedding um, between, and there's a, there's a little strip of timber between it the creek, and so I, I just want to get in there and check it out. So I was still hunting through there um, during gun season and didn't show up on the map at all. But there was just this I don't even know what you would call it, it was like maybe four feet tall. It was like a mini ridge just jutting out from this cutover. And I was like, I'm gonna go check that out. I bet there's scrape on it. Uh, and I went and checked it out, and there's just this massive community scrape uh, on it. And this was you know, during our rut, this was so this was in near the end of December. Uh, fresh, fresh grape, community scrape. A buck had worked it that morning. Um, there, the branch was broken. There was dirt in the leaves. I was like, okay, this is a hot sign. I'm, I'm just going to kind of set up downwind of this and, and see what happens. Um, and sure enough, like a buck who we, so we have antler restriction here. And I couldn't tell if this buck was, you know, he was a borderline. Uh, but sure enough, he came downwind of that, and I just kind of watched him check out that scrape and then move on.
1: Yeah, isn't isn't it wild how even, I mean, the rules do apply. It's just not. It's just different, you know. When you, when you talk about like a four foot rise, there's so many places where that wouldn't even like right. you, it wouldn't even register. And then when once you get into flat country. It's a whole different thing, and they're still using terrain features that way. Um, I wanted to ask you. So while you're while you're out there scouting, because I've found that too, where the the traditional advice on like get the get on that terrain trap that that pinch point that funnel whatever when it the flatter it gets, the harder it is to find. Usually that corresponds with a lot of swamps and a lot of water. And you're talking about getting rain every day. And the one thing that I started to find when I I started hunting more of that was. Yeah, I don't have like just this badass like saddle that's got, you know, like, you know, a bluff side saddle or something that's going to force movement. But I started to find a little higher ground going between swamp to swamp or, you know, you know, hardwood to hardwood, something like something just to work with. And it was usually tied to a water feature like they're going to go through here because it's easier than swimming or or going through the mud straight across. Do you, Do you find
2: that? Yeah, absolutely. So in relation to water, so I was hunting this one area last year, um new area and basically is where the the creek was making a uh almost a complete U. Uh and so in, in a lot of those places right the the creek when it does get high, it's kind of washing out those sides or, or exposing some of it and just kind of forms a natural creek crossing. Uh so I I will look for those um, and then, really, a lot of it, a lot of success I've had has been like just getting boots on the ground because a lot of those things don't show up. Um, and one in particular I found last year, and it didn't even show up. Like, was this steep embankment? So where the the creek had basically washed this bank out, and it was probably a twenty foot drop uh, there. But there was a creek crossing at the base of it, and there was two. Uh, really nice rubs, rubs that I was excited about on both sides of that creek crossing. Um, and then there was also one on top of that little, little bluff. So it kind of made this C shape down around, uh, the creek down to that crossing. Um, if that, if this is making sense, um, and you could almost see like, you could almost see all the rubs leading around from that, from the top of that embankment down to where that creek crossing was at and of course there was you know tons of tracks um, deer sign them just traveling through there so finding those little little places where you know maybe the creek isn't as deep um yeah i think those, those are key too when when you're dealing with such a wide flat area like looking for those those crossings that are really easy for them to to get through so they don't have to wait or they don't have to you know make a huge jump up a bank. Do do you find
1: when you're doing that, you know, let's say you're out there in February, March, and you're looking around for, for something like that. Do you you find a lot of consistent spots or do you find something where you're like, man, the signs here from, you know, this past season that just wrapped up, I'm going to give it a shot. But you, you, because where I'm going with this is like, when I hunt public land a lot and I scout it a lot, I feel like sometimes I stumble onto something that's really good, like that, a spot. But a lot of times I feel like I'm just getting clued into a pattern, you know, kind of like when you're bass fishing where you're like, oh, they're just doing this. Like, I just need to do this now because I know, you know, people might come in, they might run their dogs through there, like things are going to change there. But the more you expose yourself to, you know, looking at this type of spot in person, you go, okay, they use this here, even though this isn't going to maybe last for years and years Cause things are going to change. It's I'm better off knowing it because I can see this again and again in different spots.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> so one thing, edges, I, th- I think are a big thing that people overlook even in the South, like so hard or soft edges, um, especially those soft edges that, that are really subtle. Um, so last year I was hunting this buck and I was basically, I'd found his rubs and i was pretty sure i knew where they were leading to this general bedding area and i was trying to narrow down exactly where how he was accessing it or kind of where he was bedding at because it's oh i don't know like 500 acres of a bit of you know potential bedding and he's probably not bedding out in the middle of it like it's just too thick um that also just doesn't really give him a Super advantage as far as like if he needs to get out of there.
1: Yeah, he, he doesn't need to put in that work when he can get the no. advantage closer to the edge, right?
2: Right. Uh, and I think that's another thing too that people will just assume like, oh, there's a giant block of, you know, young pines. Like that deer, there's going to, there's got to be a massive buck in there. And that's just, you know, unfortunately not the case. <laughs> He's not diving off in the middle of there. But so anyway, I, I was hunting this area. Um, found his, his rubs, I was trying to, you know, backtrack it back to the bedding. What I found was a lot of these rubs were, in this bedding area too, went up slightly. So I wouldn't even call it a hill, really. May, it might have went up 10, 20 feet, not a significant change. Um, but what I did notice is that his rubs were along this transition, right, which is, which is pretty, um, you know, universal. Yeah, you, know, you find that buck travel route. You find that sign uh, along these transitions, um, and and eventually, I ended up seeing this buck during the rut, the same area, um, and, and the does. had by this point, had kind of shifted to this area as well, just because of the nat- natural brows. So they had shifted closer to where the buck was bedding, um, but 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 I have found that like those soft edges even though they get overlooked there's bucks on there and if they're leading you know that's leading to bedding there's a lot of good natural browse there like there's a lot of green briar that have been nipped off Um, so there's food there you know when he's staging before he's going out into the the woods um, you know the big open woods know he's not he's not going to be there in shooting light but that browse area um, yeah that's uh, that's kind of where i saw him at um
1: well, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because soft edges don't get a lot of love. And like you just you kind of just laid out there is a, you know, they, they connect something to something typically. Right. So there's they're kind of a natural travel route with some cover, keep you hidden. They almost always offer some kind of browse that you might not find in that nice big open woods or that woods you'd want to turkey hunt through or whatever. And it's not so thick that it kind of sucks to be there. So it has all these different advantages and they're just not something that a lot of people are going to focus on. So, so give me an example when you're down there, whether you're winter scouting or you're sneaking through, you know, bow hunting, rifle hunting, whatever, what, like, what's a scenario where you'd find a, a soft edge? Like what creates it for you down there?
2: Yeah, so usually when so <clears throat> we have a lot of uh pine and hardwood mix. Uh in a lot of these places, especially if you're hunting national forest or um you know WMAs, then those are for them like they're not logging those, like especially if they're you know mature uh woods, like so where those come together, typically even if they're you know older pines, um, a lot of the way the WMAs are managed. Is sort of dictated by pine growth as well because right they can regenerate they provide a lot of bedding cover for deer so um, anywhere that's been logged right so you think about logging cuts you know which is obviously applicable to big woods if you're thinking about the northeast um, or even you know, big woods anywhere else so where there's been disturbance there whether it's been five two, ten years. Um, a lot of those transitions from, from there to big open hardwoods, right. Cause the deer are going to want to be there in the early season and there's still going to be plenty of browse um, in those transitions later on in the season as well.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, you, you kind of mentioned earlier that a lot of the traditional whitetail advice doesn't really apply to you and I, I, or, you know, to Southern hunting in general. And I think it's important to know, cause you, you would think like, it's really easy for me to write an article about e-scouting and how to find a soft edge in my world, right? Like you could, you can see it depending, if you know what to look for, you can find those. And the timber production, like you're talking about, is the easiest way to find it. But there's, you know, there's old homesteads in the woods, there's old fence lines, there's old meadow, like there's stuff that you can find. And you'd think, okay, well, I get into the big woods down south and, you know, maybe Onyx or something isn't quite as valuable, but you just have to learn how to read it differently. And And, and I would say probably have to get your ass in there and walk around a little bit more to actually see how it goes versus just calling your shots from staring at your phone screen.
2: Oh, that's been, yeah, that, that's probably been the biggest help. It's just like, Oh, obviously like, you know, narrowing down on a place is super helpful and being like, okay, I can tell, obviously here's a, here's some potential betting, right? Um, this has been cut in the last whatever, five years. I know this is going to be some, this is going to be great betting. Um, now I need to get in there and see, like, okay, well, what's going to keep them around there? What, because we have a lot of sweet gums too. And I've I've known, you know, a lot of guys look l- look at a map, or and think like, oh, this is this should be great. And it's like, no, it looks like a bunch of great hardwoods, but that's a whole block of sweet gums, and they don't have any reason to be <laughs> to be in there. Um, I don't know where we we're going with this.
1: Well, just just talking about the difference in kind of learning what to read on on X and stuff and just, you know, like again, kind of the same rules, kind of, but oh, it's, right. a, it's a different playing field.
2: Yeah, for sure. And and especially long, um, you know, if you're hunting along Creek or river systems, uh, that's another thing. Like there's probably going to be some cane breaks around there where deer can bed in. They're probably not going to bed in those super consistently depending on the size, um of these cane breaks but uh, a lot of times especially you know if a place depending on how wet it stays and how deep the water is um deer will bed and super thick stuff like that uh, on the edge of cane breaks actually uh i jumped up a buck last year in a cane break that might have been 10 feet by 10 feet it was in the middle of big woods But it was closer, it was one of those subtle, uh, soft edges, right? So there was a couple patches of of cane uh, that he was kind of, the one that he was in, and then it steadily um, got thicker and thicker into what, you know, you probably would assume was bedding. But he was just bedding in, you know, this patch of cane and, um, you know, that doesn't really look like a soft edge, but it is. And it was just really subtle, and and you're not going to know that until you bump a deer out of it. I think
1: I think understanding edge habitat as a as an outdoorsman in general is like way important. I mean, we uh, this is going to sound way off topic, but I'll bring it home. Like we pheasant hunt a lot up here and we hunt a lot of cattail sloughs and you stand and look into a cattail slough that's a couple hundred acres and it looks like mono habitat, like you know it looks like a cornfield, right? Like you're like It looks all the same. You might see a little patch of willows or something out there. You might see some like differentiation somewhere. But once you get into there, you start jumping roosters where there's an edge of some sort. Like it's where those cattails meet some other kind of brush or a little higher ground or you know a, a little waterway through there or something. And those are also the same places you jump deer. And then when you start doing what you're talking about, and you get into the woods and you scout a lot and pay attention you realize there are concentrations of deer around these things that you just wouldn't know until you were there.
2: Yeah. And you, you, you know, it's easy when you're looking at a map, right? It, it looks like everything is nice and divided, right. And and everything looks like a hard edge or even, even the way we think about, you know, deer movement or deer bedding. is like, Oh, the deer bed here, I hunt here. And then it's going to happen here. Um, and that's hardly the case, right? Yep. <laughs> um, they just don't move from, we like to think of the deer movement as being linear, uh, but and it may seem like that, but uh, I think that's far from, far from the case.
1: It's even in places where it should be, at least in my experience, you know, when I've hunted out West and I'm hunting like a river bottom where I can see them, you know, I mean, I, I see them moving early and they're, they should be going from this patch of cover to that field. You watch how they do it and so often it is not that linear movement. You will see that right at last light and right at first light sometimes where it's like they just put their nose down and they go. But most of the time where they're killable isn't where they're they're taking that route. That's a, that's a during dark type of thing a lot of times.
2: Yeah. And like, you know, I'll hunt my dad, you know, my dad and I, we we plant blue plots at at his place and you know, we'll we'll hunt those and but when all you see is deer coming into the, the food plot you think oh well the deer just came from bedding here and it's like yeah you didn't see that deer cross the you know come up to the creek feed along the edge of it you know clip some of this green briar um and then dip down maybe maybe they like made a movement back up this way to get the wind uh where they came out at the food plot you, do, you don't see that
1: no, cuz you're not you're just literally yeah. not w- witnessing it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I want to I want to switch gears a second here. Uh Do you do any summer scouting down there?
2: Yeah, I'll do um not a ton. I do a couple, especially if I want to check out um new places just to kind of get boots on the ground and see see what's there. Um cuz if it looks like you know, if if it's got one bedding, it's got you know, good access. I can get in there, and I know there's. You know, I can see a ton of white oaks around. Um, if I can see that there's good browse, then you know, I, I kind of make a note whether mentally or and on 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 X, and uh, you know, make that just make that note. You know, like, hey, I should come back here and check this out, or I might get in there. Like last year, I went. I wanted to check this place out because access to it um, was very limited as far as like other hunters. Would go or what they would be willing to, to do um and i was like oh this should be a great place you know and got in there and it just wasn't the case um so so i'll, I'll use for summer scouting uh, that's kind of my approach to it it's like hey is this going to be a good option that i need to check out again so it's not really an in depth and it's also just so thick um we have a ton of snakes down here uh, and it's just you know screaming hot so it's not it's cool, but
0: uh, it gets old quick too. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear what I like to do. On the same grill. You can go from low and slow okay, on smoke boost mode, which gives you great smoke at 180 degrees, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. This, this, this is my way of saying. If I was going to cook roast one way, that's how I like to do it. Sear roast. Utilize the smoke boost setting to intensify that smoky flavor. Direct flame cooking. Create searing, crisping, and browning. Food's going to look as good as it tastes. This grill gets hot in 15 minutes. Cleanup is easy. Cook confidently with intuitive digital controls at the grill and enjoy the sleek, easy-to-use surface. You can also add a heavy-duty rotisserie or rust-resistant griddle insert to up your game. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's
3: heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.
1: So, you kind of use your January, February um, time window to scope places that you're like, I, I hunt here. Like, this is one of my go-to properties. And then in the summer, you're looking at Onyx or whatever, and you're like, hey, I'm you know, I don't really know that WMA or that part of the National Forest. So then you'll go in and kind of turn and burn and just see if it's worth some more of your time. Right. Do you do you run trail cameras down there at all?
2: Uh, not on the public land. We, we do some. My, my dad's place that we hunt. Um, it just doesn't really... I found that the hot sign is just way more useful than trying to fumble with cameras
1: because you, um, you feel like you're sort of working on old information all the time
2: that and i do a lot of steel hunting anyway so i'm you know i'm trying to i'm, I'm on the move and, and especially when the rut kicks in like i feel like that is where a lot of people get you know fall into a trap it's like oh here's my this is the, the data i've got from the camera well that's cool. If you saw this buck here two days ago, but he might not be here. Yeah. Um, he could be 500 yards away. You know, he could be half a mile away. Um, and I've just found that, you know, if you're hunting public land, it's just a lot easier if you know you do the work yourself.
1: Yeah. I don't, I love trail cameras on private land. I don't use them on public. Um, I like almost never, because I just feel like it's, it's not the right tool for the job for what I'm doing anyway. Uh, what, what's the gun season down there? Cause I know in a lot of places, you know, we talk about gun season up here. It might be a couple of weeks or a month, depending on where you live. But I know in a lot of Southern states, there's like a pretty prolonged, you know, rifle season in a lot of places that, you know, overlaps with the bow season. What are you dealing with down there?
2: So our gun season, I think kicks off. It's like November 18th.
1: What, when does your bow season start?
2: Uh, October 1st. We oh, did okay. do, we did get a, uh, three day velvet season last year in, uh, starts in September. Uh, I think it's like th- maybe the second or third week of September. Um, but it's three days. But, um, so
1: then your traditional bow season opens October one and then your, your gun season opens in like third week of November. Something right. like that. Okay.
2: And then, so and depending on where you're hunting at, whether it's national forest or WMA um, you know, there are primitive weapons seasons in there as well, but if you're hunting private land, at least here in Mississippi, uh, you can use weapon of choice once gun season opens. So, um, yeah, you can use whatever rifle you want basically from that third week in November to the end of, um, end of January.
1: Are, are there any, is there any people out there still bow hunting by like the end of December?
2: Honestly, there's not a ton of people, uh, not a ton of people bow hunting in October. Like, like bow hunting, I feel like isn't as big in Southern culture as it is in the Midwest, right? Because there's a lot of states you can't you're limited to straight wall cartridges or shotguns. Um, You know, I grew up. I didn't I didn't start bow hunting until I was in college, um, because nobody in my in my family bow hunted. It was like, why, why are you going to hunt in October? It's hot. There's a ton of mosquitoes. Um, hunting's not going to get good until that first week of gun season anyway. And so, um, they like, I, I'm telling you, I, the amount of bow hunters I've ran into, uh, hunting public land is right now is very little.
1: Huh? It, yeah. And, it, and that, I mean, that's largely a, well, it's a function of the conditions, but it's also a function of having just a long available gun season.
2: Yeah. I mean, and that, that's the idea. Like a lot of people are like, well, why would I you know, miss a chance at shooting a buck? If I can take my rifle, which, you know, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Um, but yeah, we, and because, you know, I know a lot of, a lot of Midwesterners talk about the, the October lull, right. Which is, is or isn't this that, thing?
1: That's Kenyon's bullshit. That's not mine. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, in the South we have the October November lull, so <laughs> we we open the same time. And it's just the you no, know, the deer still moving. Uh, just got to find them. But um,
1: how how does that affect your scouting? Knowing knowing there's going to be you know four months of pressure on those deer and two and a half months or whatever that is is going to be rifle hunters and probably a lot of them kind of doing what you're doing where they're still hunting because of the terrain and maybe not not setting up and waiting on them as much as they would in other places does it affect your scouting at all i mean is that why you're so tuned into like the mass thing because you can follow it by you know time frame of the season
2: yeah so it does a little bit i mean Mainly, what that affects is the places I'm going to spend time. So, um, you know, if it's depending depending on where it's at, and so so part of that scouting too is I'm looking for hunter activity as well. Like, has there been a lot of hunters here? Uh, do I see a lot of trucks parked there as well? Uh, and in the past, I've had the privilege of like to be able to hunt during the week a lot, which I've had a great great success with like, as far as running into other hunters, which is for whatever reasons, you know, on Saturdays, it's a different story. Uh, but during the week, um, so that's one thing I I try to shoot for, but as far as like places I'm going to, to target to hunt, you know, I'm thinking, all right, uh, my access, how far away is it from the nearest parking lot? Um, is this a heavily pressured WMA? If it's not, then I'm, can pretty, I can just about bet I'm not going to run into anybody. Um, it's kind of crazy, like, like I think that, especially I, mean, I just think the South is like overlooked. And I don't know why. I mean, we like Mississippi, like this state, produces good bucks. Like, you know, on public land and private. Like, you can shoot a like. I'm not going to say you should hold out for a you know 150 class deer <laughs> on public land, but. The reality of you, you know, getting a shot at a nice buck is—it's I mean, a reality. Um, there's just not a lot of pressure that I've—I found. Now there are places, right? Like I feel like the Delta, which is you know known for producing big bucks in the state. It gets pressured a lot, but also the public land you're dealing with out there is more—it's a lot smaller. It's a lot more concentrated. Um, your access to places are also a lot easier. Um, Whereas you're, if you're dealing with you know a lot of national forest here in like the central or even the northern and southern parts of the state, like you know you might walk you know a mile or even half a mile and not even not worry about seeing a hunter. It's it's cool and pretty wild to think about at the same time.
1: It w- what I'm getting from you are a couple things that that are like there are lessons that everybody who's listening to this should pay attention to. You, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier and I want to touch on it and I kind of forgot, but when you mentioned there's bedding everywhere, like that, that lesson is look at where you hunt. What, what does the land have everywhere for the deer? Cause that's not that important. So if you're just as an example, like if you, if you went and hunted someplace in Iowa, food would be everywhere you know, and I'm not saying don't focus on food. I'm just saying the bedding would be more important there. Now you talk about hunting down there and it's like, man, we've got bedding everywhere. So you better brush up on browse. You better brush up on these little subtle elevation changes where they might throw that community scrape. Cause it's, it's, there's an advantageous position there something like what, what isn't like overly common there. You've got water everywhere down there. You're not going to play that pattern, right? Like yeah. if you're, you know, if you're in South Dakota in some places, that might be a huge deal because there could be yep. limited water. Like, think about that. And then the other thing is we we tend to focus so much on all the disadvantages we have. So you, you mentioned a couple things about how thick it is, Uh, you know, how snakes, the mosquitoes, the general weather, but also even though you have this super long gun season, that keeps a bunch of bow hunters out. So you have an advantage there as a bow hunter in a major way. And this is... This goes for anyone, wherever you're living, like, there's, there's bad parts about where you hunt, but you probably have some advantages that maybe you're not giving full credit to that could work. To, like you could work them. And I, I love hearing that. And it's not to say that any of that's easy. It's not like it's going to, you know, I know Adam's sitting here telling you, just come down there and shoot a couple one thirties and you'll be good. It's not so simple, but you do have advantages. and it, And I think that's so cool about wherever you
2: hunt. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing too, you know, me and a buddy were joking this past year, you know, just all the people we were listening to or talking on social media, you know, it's like, <clears throat> you know, mid December and it's like, well, deer season's over. That's it for this year. Uh, I guess we're going to start time flies or whatever now. And it's like, like, man, we haven't even hit the rut yet. Like, like we have a month and a half of, good, of great deer hunting that's, that's about to hit, um, And it really is. It's cool. Like, we don't have to deal with snow. Um, You know, I I don't have to tie flies to pass the time, (laughs) you know, when winter gets here. It's like, no, this is like a great time to be in the woods. Um, A rut, depending on where you're at in the state, you know, it could be the the first week of December. It could be the first week of January, Um, which is great. Like, I think that's why I set out to do English or or was thinking I was going to do education because... freshman year of college i had this month off and i had pre-rut the rut the post-rut to hunt and i was like man this is great i'm gonna go into education and teach college so i can just like hunt and this is gonna be great they're in the south i mean i think my freshman year of college so we have like a, a pretty liberal bag limit here so you know you can take three bucks and you can take i think it's four does i think it was five but my freshman year of college i filled three buck tags and, and a doe and was like, man, this is this is awesome, you know. And uh, I think that is drastically different from, obviously, from you know, typical hunting, you know, hunting industry stuff. Well, for sure. I
1: mean, it, one of my biggest complaints about living in Minnesota is it's a one buck state. Generally, we have a, some CWD stuff where you can shoot more now, but it's like, man, if you go out and you kill one on opening day, you're like, well. Like I'm gonna be that trout dork that you talk about that's tying flies. Like all those all those guys we work with out in Bozeman who are gonna be mad at you for saying that they're not gonna let you in their drift boats. Uh, you mentioned everybody wants to hear this. I don't really care about snakes; they don't bother me very much. I've been around them a lot, and I don't have that like gene deep fear of them. But a lot of people do, and they always want to hear about it. What What are you watching out for snake wise down there?
2: Uh, so we got a lot of cottonmouths, and then. You know, down especially down south here, around this National Forest, uh, we've got a lot of timber rattlers, uh, copperheads too. Um, but I found that cottonmouths are really the biggest thing, especially you know it's wet. If you're hunting a creek system or you know river bottom, um, plenty of cottonmouths. And I and I've seen I have seen them out all year. Um, I've seen snakes, you know, in, in February. Um, but as far as like when I'm when I'm deer hunting, like I'm not worried about them. Yeah, you know, if it's the if it's the early early bow season, yeah, um, turkey season, yeah, but as far as as, far as the middle of deer season, I'm, I'm not really
1: worried. Have you ever been struck?
2: No, I, I came close last year. I was summer scouting and was just gonna dr- drop um, jump across this little this little creek, and I guess I just forgot to look this time and, and jumped across and. As soon as I jumped and I landed, I looked and then I just saw this white mouth open, and then one one leap, I just went right back across, and I was like, "Nope, it's not that important. Uh, I can check it out later."
1: Are are cottonmouths pretty aggressive?
2: No, I mean it, no, unless you're trying to mess with them, yeah, you'll walk right by them.
1: It's just and a but, matter of contact of running into them in the places you're scouting deer a lot of times.
2: Yeah, unless you even it, even and if you step on them that um, yeah, they're they're really not that aggressive.
1: What what's your spider situation like? Cuz that's what I do not like.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I would rather have snakes than spiders. Me too. And uh, man, bow season, especially the early early part, it's full of them. It's part of it.
1: Ah, like what 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 kind?
2: Oh, I mean, they're all harmless. They're like uh I don't know what you would call a lot we used to call banana spiders they're kind of black and yellow and they make these they can they can get really big but they're you know, they're not poisonous and it's just kind of a icky thing yeah they're Maybe.
1: disgusting
2: yeah, yeah i just don't want them crawling on i would literally i would rather have a snake than a spider any day
1: me too 100 yeah. percent. i i hunted the first time i hunted down in oklahoma i uh I don't know, set up a spot, whatever, went to go back in there the next morning. And this was this was on October 1, their opener down there. At that, I think it still is, but that's what it was at that time. And I had my headlamp on and I just remember like walking along and there were spiders hanging like, it was like, they were almost out in the open air because their webs were so big and they were so big. And I just like you know, you'd look up the trail and they're all the way up there. And you're like, I have to go up there. And I'm like, I would re- I think I just want to go back and get my truck and go home. Like, and I should have on that trip. Cause that was the one where I almost lost my nuts on a fence post, but I just do not like spiders. So hearing that, cause you, you almost had me talked into making that trip down there at some point. And then you start talking about this and I'm like, man, I don't know. I, I don't mind having these winners where all of our spiders are these little loser, tiny spiders that we don't have to worry about. <laughs>
2: No, they're not. No, once you get past the first first, you know, part of the season, they're not an issue at all.
1: What What do you worry about down there that could actually, besides the snakes, that could actually mess you up a little bit?
2: Mm. Other hunters? Yeah. No, they're, they're, <laughs> there's really, we have coyotes, but, you
1: know. No, but, I mean, but like, what could bite you? Like, you got any scorpions or fire ants or any of that stuff?
2: No, I know Alabama has some uh, scorpions. Yeah, fire ants, Um, but I'm not you know unless you're hunting a field edge or something you know or you walk through one or you're standing in one no not really nothing really else to be worried about yeah we don't have bears well we we have sorry we have black bears um but they're really uh uncommon to see
1: you can't hunt them can you
2: no no they're they're protected here
1: Uh, and you so you said that you know you you like to still hunt down there you got a, a lot of land to roam and you're kind of hunting cover that's somewhat conducive to that, to moving around and find a fresh sign and slowing down. Do you do any, I mean, are you setting any stands? Or are you doing any saddle hunting, any of that stuff?
2: No, yeah, I've got a uh, saddle. And so, I mean, I do, I think equally amount of both. It just depends on the day. Like, man, if we get a, a rain that passes through that morning, like I'd rather be moving, rather be still hunting, especially if I want to, you know, if I'm going to check out somewhere that's new, know it doesn't really behoove me to just go pick a spot and sit um so i love still hunting for that reason um but but i'd say i split the time it just depends on on the on the weather on the conditions and stuff like that
1: do you find that that's you know still hunting a you're actively hunting but b you're also actively scouting while you're actively hunting and so does your season kind of break down to, you know, if you find that, you know, just banging, you know, white acorn drop or something like that. And you're like, I have to be here now and post up for a while and that situation dies or you blow it out and you're like, all right, it's time to go back to still hunt and just figure out where they are. Is that kind of how you operate?
2: Yeah. I mean, one, I think it just like helps you from getting burned out. Um, you know, early season when deer pretty much on a, especially October, November, you know, you know they're hitting those wide oaks they're pretty patternable at that stage um i really love to do a lot of still hunting during the rut like i know a lot of people will say okay you just need to sit over this funnel eventually it's going to happen but it's like okay well if you have limited time you know and you're sitting this one you're pushing all your chips in on one or two places it's like okay well what if the action's not there you know and i, and I think a lot of people you know especially here right when you're trying you're thinking about a lot of bedding cover. But also a lot of um you know food too as far as like you know white oaks go whatever um you know a lot of people are like okay well i got a trail pick here or i'm just going to set up here this is looks like a place where you know a buck would travel through well i don't know i just don't want to i feel more productive if i'm i'm going where where the action is you know and so if you can still hunt your way through you know one of those edges you know where you know deer moving through um i did that last year I, w- I was still hunting and um didn't get a shot but i heard something and i looked and there were these does running towards me and this was like one of the days i wanted to be in the woods for the rut so i posted up and i could see antlers running through the woods and um anyway he ended up pushing those does literally like 10 yards they busted me he didn't really know what was going on and um and ran off but it's like but I wouldn't have known um at that point like oh this is where the action is ended up you know seeing a lot of action uh there a couple of days later uh, but I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't been still hunting yeah
1: i mean it's it, it this is so cliched but it is a lost art you know i mean when when i was growing up and i first started deer hunting i still hunted a lot i mean it was yeah. just it was more fun to me than sitting in a tree stand and it's, you know, part of it is if you don't have the land to roam, it doesn't do you any good, you know? So right. if you're, if you're hunting 30 acres, like you're going to post up, like you just are, it, right. but if you have the land to roam, man, you get an educate. I mean, not only is it just fun, cause it's just not, it's just not sitting and waiting, you know, but you also get an education on how to read terrain and like where to stop and when to move and. Man, your spidey senses get real sharp when you do that. Like you start to figure out like, and I, I think you kind of plug into a rhythm in nature that you're, it's not so passive as just like, you know, winds out of the West. I sit in this tree, like you're out there and now you got to like, got to peek down into this thing. And like, oh, there's a bunch of sun blazing through here. So I'm going to work around it. And it's, it's a kind of an immersive, different experience and it can be so much fun.
2: Yeah, it is. And I mean, I mean, I think that, like I said, it, it, you know, stops you from getting burned out. You actually see where the hot sign is. You see what, where the movement is, where it's going on. Um, it also dispels a lot of those myths. Like, you know, if you go somewhere and sit and you don't see deer, well, well, it's like, oh, well the rut's not happening. Maybe it's not going on right now. Um, maybe the deer aren't here. It's like, well, if you would have been still hunting, you know, and, you would walk, you know, 300 more yards. It's like, Oh, there's where the action's happening. So, you know, I think a lot of times too, you know, people will say, Oh, they're locked down right now. Like I promise there's some deer moving somewhere, Like, they got to move.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Those, those blanket statements drive me crazy too. Like the lull or the lockdown or like, Oh, they're all nocturnal. Like all of them. Are you sure?
2: Yeah. I mean, a lot, that's why a lot of people, you know, I talk to who've live here their whole lives. Probably only hunted. Maybe they've hunted public land. Maybe they haven't. But it always gets trashed. I'm like, we can trash it if you want. But I see plenty of deer moving, plenty of daylight on public land, and they're there.
1: Yep. What What are the antler point restrictions? What's the restriction down
2: there? So I think it's four uh, on one side with a. In some places it's a ten inch inside spread. Some places it's fifteen. Mm-hmm. Just
1: depends um, but, where you're at.
2: Yeah, so I think the the Delta, obviously, they have a little bit. I think it has to have a I can't remember the, the main inch, main beam, length. But um, yeah, so I mean, you come to Mississippi, you can, you know, you're gonna get a shot if you're gonna shoot a buck. Like it, it's gonna be, you know, a decent buck.
1: Yeah, i was just trying to figure out what the smallest deer I could shoot if I came down there would be.
2: Um. Yeah. Uh, Ten inch main beam.
1: I can handle that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe it's 12 inch main beam, 10 inch inside spread. Yeah.
1: Something like that. Uh, cool. Adam, we're out of time, man. Uh, you're out there writing for a bunch of places. You're going to have some stuff coming up here for Meat Eater and uh, Outdoor Life. And who else?
2: Uh, do some writing a gear junkie. Uh, I've got a piece coming out, Game and Fish Mag, um, I think later this fall. So. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, buddy. This has been a lot of fun, man.
2: Hey, you too. Thanks,
1: Tony. That's it for this week, folks. Be sure to tune in next week for more whitetail goodness. This has been the Wired to Hunt podcast, and I'm your guest host, Tony Peterson. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you're looking for some more whitetail content, you can head over to themeeteater.com and you'll see episodes of the buck truck that those boys from The Element put together. You can read articles by myself and Mark and Alex Gilstrom and Bo Martonic and a whole bunch of whitetail addicts. All kinds of good information there. So head on over there if you want more Whitetail content. Hey,
0: if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready Not rusty. This griddle heats evenly, edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart & Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.